Hello, and welcome to part two of this episode from our series of podcasts, looking at the effects of COVID on schooling in Ohio. I'm Carol Oxley, co-director of the OLAC Project. Today, we'll continue talking about how the pandemic has caused an increase in school failure rates in Ohio, a problem seen across the country too. We'll continue speaking with Reva Cosby, Brian McNulty, and Rocco Aducci. They help us think about some solutions to the problem and how those solutions relate to wider issues of student engagement and student assessment. Brian, when we left off last time, as you were speaking with Dr. Jim Gay, we were discussing issues relating to failure rates and structural factors at play across the state. Can you give us a sense of how these factors affect Ohio? There's a lot of diversity in Ohio, like most states, but even probably more so in in Ohio, just because it's so big. And you have a number of large school districts, you know, the big urban eight districts are, it's unusual for a state to have that many large urban centers, right? Ohio does. That means they have more low-income kids, more kids of color, more second language learners, and and probably more kids with disabilities, right? Just disproportionate numbers, right? So Ohio is impacted probably more than some states, although I will tell you, you know, Ohio also has part of Appalachia in it, and that part is very similar to rural areas in many states. They don't have good internet. They, they don't have Wi-Fi. They, you know, they, at, at best, they have a dish, right? So it's it's a big problem for Ohio. You see the range of problems nationally. You see all of them in Ohio. So it's not that much different. It's just maybe more represented in Ohio because of both the rural part of Ohio and then the big urban centers. Thanks, Brian. Getting back to the structural factors in Trotwood Madison Schools, which is near Dayton, Reva, can you give us a sense of what some of these look like for your students and families? You know, one of the things that we found out was that some of our students weren't signing on because they didn't want people to see their backgrounds. We had one teacher who said she was being extremely distracted by a young lady, a student, a third grader. And she said to her, you know, you need to stop this rocking. It is you're distracting me on the computer and the other students. Can you stop? The little girl held up her arm. She was babysitting a baby for her mother. And uh, so, you know, it, we had things like that that were going on. Wow. So what were some of the solutions that you came up with to address these issues? So what I did was um, I found um, Dr. Doug Reeves, who does a lot of work on this and on assessment of students. And and so he particularly has been talking about failures during this time of COVID. And so um, I sat in on one of his um, workshops and, and got some valuable information. And then I brought him to my district to talk to my teachers because I was about to ask my teachers not to grade their students in a traditional way, not to average their grades, not to um, say, but yes, but he missed three days. So, you know, that's an F, you know, he's missed so many assignments. I was asking them to consider what the essential or power standards were 
or what they taught their content and to then do an authentic assessment with the student to determine, did the student learn the material? Because so often the things that go into grades have nothing to do with whether or not you actually know the material. One way of doing this is known as formative assessment. Brian, can you tell us some of the benefits of this method? So there's an accountability part of grades, but the real purpose of grades, most people I think would agree, is meant to be feedback to students. So we shouldn't wait till the final grade to have a student failing, right? Which is what this discussion is about. We don't wait for kids to fail. If kids are failing, then we intervene, right? Because it's meant to be feedback. And so we should find out why are kids failing? Is it that they don't have access, right? Uh, is it that they couldn't complete the assignment and submit it because you know, again, their internet didn't work or, you know, there could be a hundred reasons, but we need to be much less judgmental and more inquisitive as to the, the reasons for failure first, right? And then intervene, right? You know, every single teacher and groups of teachers should be identifying kids who are failing or are at risk of failing and be intervening with those kids one-on-one -on -one already, right? Maybe the last thing is teachers need to get better at giving more feedback to kids. You know, by and large, most written feedback on tests, we know kids, when they see that the score, they, they, ball it up and they throw it in the trash. They don't look at the notes, right? Because it's too late, you can't fix it anyway, or that's what they think, right? And that's been our practice. So feedback is really helping kids understand how to do better, right? How to understand deeper, how to apply differently, right? So this idea of intervening and supporting kids one-on-one, -on -one, every kid who's failing, that's gotta be our primary focus. So. That's just a few things that I would suggest we, we ask teachers to do a little bit differently. Don't wait till the end of the quarter. Don't wait certainly till the end of the semester. Reva, can you give us a sense of what you asked your teachers to do differently with regard to assessment? What I asked them specifically was to identify the three or five most essential standards that were taught that semester. I wanted them to then create three to five authentic assessments that would align with those standards. And, you know, I gave them idea options about what they could do. It could be in a conversation. You could have them do artwork. You could have them show you that they know this information. So that's one part of the issue, right? So if schools and districts wanted to do something about that, they would establish what in the old days we used to call power standards. What are the most important learning outcomes? Because you're not going to be able to teach all of them, right? So that we could solve that one issue by getting people, particularly teachers, to agree what is the most important learning outcome. So that's part one is the learning outcome. Part two is how do we grade that, right? So grading is its own set of problems, right? Reva, can you talk a little bit about what kind of support or professional development you use when implementing these new methods? Tools for thoughtful assessment, 
um, the thought, thoughtful classroom. We shared that with their staff. We do that frequently. We do PD for them on Fridays because our students work remotely on Friday. And um, we also um, participate in what's called Modern Teacher. And that's our um, platform for doing the remote work. And ODE supports this. And that was something that um, our state support team helped us with. But we have um, what we call playlist. And so the teachers had the opportunity to um, add some of these authentic assessments into their playlist for the students. Um, so we do gather things like that, resources, and share them with staff so that they can read up on their own and understand what, what I was asking them, that it wasn't just a give me grade. There's basically, you know, districts that do that, that teach in a more authentic, well, assess in a more authentic way. Great. What kind of impact have these things had in your district? We did give out fewer Fs, so that was a very positive thing that happened. And I think the teachers have a better understanding of what now they need to go back and reteach what major things each individual student didn't get. That's another piece of it as well, is really dealing with the individual student. You know, we say that that's what we do, but it's very difficult to do. And um, asking them to do that is, is asking a lot, but that's what we need to do. I think from what I was shared with by my staff, we ended up giving between, still gave a lot of Fs. I mean, like six to 700 Fs, but that was still a savings of like 300. And, and I think the teachers felt like instead of being zero Fs and the child didn't have a chance or 10, they were making more like, but I think the student can pass and they are able to say that to them. You know, they move their score up to like a high, you know, F or low D, that type of thing. So it's not, the kids didn't just automatically turn around and get A's and B's, but they got an opportunity to be able to pass if they work hard this semester. And do you see these changes as being more permanent? I wanted to get this done without setting in stone how we were going to move forward with grading and assessing students. But the realization for all of us that we do need to take a look at assessment. And so we are going to develop, we're already putting in place an assessment committee to look at how we assess, how to break down our standards into power standards, which is something that has been done before, um, even in my district. But I think it's one of those things that's done and is set aside. And then teachers out of habit, I, I understand it, just go back to the way we've always taught. Also another silver lining, and, and I think it um, impacts our teachers' understanding of what their students go through is them now seeing them in their homes and what they're dealing with. And so that student that's sleeping in your class who then would get a zero for participation that day, which can bring your grade down, the teacher understands, oh, they may have been up all night because they do have an infant and in, in the home and they're helping take care of it or they're working extra hours. It made our kids' um, living situation be more understandable to staff because our staff don't live in the same 
environment and community that their students do. Wow, that is great. So as Rocco and Reba have laid out for us, the pandemic has raised all kinds of questions for educators, but many of them are linked to structural issues that already existed. Figuring out how to address these issues has never been more important. Brian, can you tell us why this matters for the future? If kids fail a class, you know, or they fail just a subject area, then it can mean that they're held back in school, right? And what we do know is that once you're held back, even by one grade, your chances of dropping out of school increase significantly. If you're held back a second time, you definitely are gonna drop out of school. So failure rates to kids have supreme effects on the rest of their life. Because what we do know is kids, it is important still for kids to graduate, at least from high school, right? So, so something that penalizes them to such a degree that it literally guarantees that they're not going to graduate isn't something that we should be doing during the pandemic where kids are trying to get their education online. Uh, so failure, I, we should be doing everything we possibly can to prevent failure for kids. And this issue disproportionately affects students who experience structural barriers to education? Yeah, and so let me just talk about that because poverty, race, language, disability, all impact education already, right? It, but they particularly impact these subgroups of kids because they, they, they're, they're, they either don't have good access or it, it requires very specialized supports, right? We need to have somebody who's bilingual who can talk to kids, right? So what we've got to do instead is look at how would we increase the supports that we provide to those kids? Because that's the only thing that's going to make a difference. Rocco and Riva, even though so much of what we've discussed has been about the current pandemic, can you tell us what you're looking to for the future? Absolutely. I think a lot of people think technology is the answer. It's part of it. It's a tool. But the way you think about teaching and learning until you, you, you take a different approach to that, uh, I think, it, it, you know, it's going to be hard. But, you know, sharing this story and getting all the schools in, in Ohio and, and, and some to work together, how you doing that, it, it just improves things for kids everywhere. You don't want to hold on to these secrets. They're not secrets. Share your toys, learn new ones, work together. Collaboration works. And Reva? Yeah, that I, I do think, and we've said it, that it's not just a one-time fix that really we all probably need to start focusing more on how we assess things because um, how you assess your students really do have such an impact on them and, and it can impact their social emotional learning. I mean, that's really a big thing now. We talk about the whole child. We talk about um, their social emotional being and at the same time, we're really quick to say to them, you know, you're making an F, you're failing like it, like it does not impact them, but I do believe it does. So the whole idea of how we assess students is something that 
I think a lot of districts need to look at. And we're doing it. Equity, you know, is another big piece of this. And um, that's why I think sometimes the teachers struggle with why do we give them a second chance? Why do you give them a third chance to pass the same test? You know, I did um, use with them the analogy, and uh, I think uh, Doug Reeves had probably shared it or one similar, but that if, if you're the football coach and, you know, you've been told this kicker has a lot of potential and they come out there and they don't kick well, but then you coach them, you give them feedback, you, you start to tell them, move this way and, you know, and do this. And then, so the first 15 kicks, they do not make the field goal. But then 16 to 30, they get them all. Well, he's going to play. That, that kicker is going to kick. And our students should not be held accountable for those first 15 efforts that are fails if, in fact, they learn how to do it. And that's what we've been doing with traditional education and assessment. We've been saying, you walked in here and didn't know anything, and you got an F. You're walking out of here knowing it, but I'm still giving you a D because all those F's added onto that final A just didn't make it, you know. So we have to change the way we perceive assessment in my assessment <laughs> of the situation. Well, that's all the time we have. And what a great note to end on. Please know that for this podcast, we have also two additional articles and a link associated with the podcast. You will find those on the podcast landing page under the documents tab. Thank you, Brian, Rocco, and Reva for taking the time to speak with us today. And thanks to our OLAC podcast listeners. We hope you'll join us next time as we continue to look at the effects of COVID on schooling in Ohio. I'm Stanley Dudek. I provide support and technical assistance for OLAC podcasts through the University of Cincinnati's Systems Development and Improvement Center. Credit for our podcast music goes to Expendable Friend, whose musical composition is licensed under an attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 4.0 international license.